0: Our scripture this morning comes from Ecclesiastes 12. If you um, have a Bible, you can follow along with us there. If you don't, um, you can grab one of these Bibles from the table in the back. Um, and if you don't have a Bible at home, then you're welcome to um, take this with you. If you are following along with one of these Bibles from the table in the back, um, we'll be on page 623, Ecclesiastes twelve nine through 14. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. The word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Natalie. If you are just joining in with us, we are ending today a sermon series that we've been going through in the book of Ecclesiastes that we started, if you can remember that far back, all the way the first weekend after Easter. Now, if this is the first time you've been reading through the book of Ecclesiastes or maybe the first time you've read through it kind of at this level, really studied it, I think there's probably been a couple things that you've found, right? First thing... Ecclesiastes is a deep, profound, thought-provoking book, probably unlike anything that you've read in the Bible. Second thing, Ecclesiastes is a very difficult, challenging, and confusing book, probably unlike anything else you've also read in the Bible. In fact, if you have at all been confused, or frustrated, or lost, as we've been reading through this book, you're in good company. Ecclesiastes is not one of those books that we sit down and open up and read and try to wrestle into submission for it to give us all the answers. Instead, Ecclesiastes is a book that the deeper and deeper we dig into it, the more and more it wrestles us to the ground, which is good news, because that's right where God wants us to be when we open up his word. The author Eugene Peterson Uh, once said if you were going to pick any book in the Bible to read before you read through the New Testament for the first time ever, he said Ecclesiastes is the perfect book for that. Because as he puts it, no other book so strips down our simple and at times trite answers to the complex questions we have about life. No other book so systematically yet poetically breaks down our attempts to try to understand everything we see on our own and simply gets us to a spot of saying, God, I don't know, but I'm ready to listen. And Peterson says it's when you get to that point that you are finally ready to explore the person of Jesus Christ. In other words, meaning as challenging as this book has been, it is a gift from God to help us understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. And today, we get to hear the final word from it. Have you uh, ever had this experience? Have you ever met someone, maybe for the first time, where you wanted to believe what they were saying was true? But you just didn't quite know if you could for some reason. But as you listen to them, you have this inner conflict because on one hand, some of the stuff they're saying is spot on and interesting and refreshing to finally hear somebody put it like that. But then there's this other part of what they're saying that seems a little bit off. Like you're not maybe even 100% sure they're allowed to be saying it. We've all been there. I'm sure we have. Where we're listening to someone and we have kind of this inner dilemma happening inside of us where we start thinking, okay, wait, wait, wait. This sounds good, but can I, can I really believe what they're saying? Can really everything they're telling me right now all be true? Can I really trust what this person's telling me? Now, what's at stake in all this depends on what you're talking about, right? If it's something small, relatively inconsequential in life, not that big of a deal. But if what this person's trying to tell you would change everything, would change the way you thought about everything, now you've got a much bigger problem on your hands. This is the question that we bring with us to this passage today. We are at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes. Some of us probably thought it would never come. Here we are. (laughs) Over the last 12 chapters, we've heard as the teacher has been inviting us to come and sit with him and just observe our complex world. And as we've sat with him, some of the things he said have sound refreshing and interesting to hear and probably enlivening, things that we've always thought but never really heard somebody else say too. And yet some of the other things he says has made us blush. It's maybe even shocked us. Made us think, wait, wait, can that even really be said in the Bible by somebody? And it's this apparent dichotomy that I think makes us a little bit skeptical of what we read in the book of Ecclesiastes. Where we start to have this inner conflict again where we think, can this really all be right? Can this really all be true? Can I really trust that the wisdom I'm reading right here will really help me navigate through a complex world? And today we get the answer. Today we hear not from the teacher, Today we hear from the narrator of the book, who weighs in to give us the final verdict of everything that we've heard. And I think there are two things in his word today that the book of Ecclesiastes won't let us leave without hearing. The confirmation of wisdom and the challenge of wisdom. So first, the narrator starts by confirming that everything the teacher's been saying is not some crazy, off-the-walls bit of bad advice, but instead is good, right, and true words to help you and I navigate through this complex world we live in. And he starts confirming this wisdom by affirming what the teacher said in verse 9. He says, not only was the teacher wise, but he also imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered, literally, he listened intently and searched out and set in order many proverbs. Now this comes to us almost as this startling affirmation of what the teacher's been saying. You see, you could sum up everything that the teacher said so far in the book of Ecclesiastes in two words, vanity and joy. Vanity in one sense in that the teacher has lumped whole categories of things together and called them vain, futile, and absurd. Right, so he says, greed is vain, abandoning the needy is vain, injustice is absurd, pursuing pleasure is futile, wisdom on its own can be futile, jobs can be futile, the government can be futile, in face of death itself, life even seems like one big joke. I mean, you read it, he, he almost sounds kind of like the French existent, existential philosopher Albert Camus from last century who called Western life the theater of the absurd. He said, in face of death, our lives are one big joke. But, alongside the vain, futile, absurd things that the teacher sees, he also then tells us to enjoy things in life. He tells us to enjoy good food and good drinks. He tells us to enjoy relationships. He tells us to enjoy work as gifts from God. And they seem at first glance almost a little contradictory. But what the teacher's doing here is helping us understand what he calls life under the sun. That our world, as far as we can tell, is twisted in ways so that we can't always make sense of the vain, futile, absurd things that we see. However, We can, in the midst of that though, still enjoy the simple gifts and callings that God's given us in our life because it's not all meaningless. No, in the end, as we'll see, everything matters. So he confirms the wisdom of the teacher by first affirming his words, but then he shows us the authority of the teacher. In verse 11, he says, the words of the wise are like goads. They're collective sayings like firmly embedded nails. And the narrator is giving us two images here to show us the authority of the teacher. The first is he says, the words of the wise which is kind of the greater wisdom tradition in Israel. So you can think of books like Proverbs, uh, Job, parts of Psalms, Song of Songs. He's putting Ecclesiastes in all of that, and he's saying the words of the wise are like goads. Now, a goad was this long, sharp, pointy stick that a shepherd would carry with him, and he would kind of jab sheep with it to keep them on the path. You kind of think of it this way. So I grew up in Syracuse, New York, upstate New York, one of, if not the snowiest cities in the country. On an average winter, over probably about a four month span, we get 10 feet of snow, right? So think, that basketball hoop right there, up to the top of the rim in snow. Average year, right? Like we're like, man, it wasn't that bad this year. We kind of lucked out. And so as you can imagine, The roads up there are very slick and icy and snowy, and so if you live up there for any amount of time, after a while, you will have the privilege of smacking into one of the thick steel metal guardrails that kind of line every major road and highway along there to keep you on the path. The words of the wise, the words of the teacher are like guardrails like goads. They keep you on the path. Second, he says that the words of the wise are like firmly embedded nails. Now, there's a couple different ways that people understand what's being said. The best I can tell here is that it's kind of like an anchor. Now, if you have ever gone sailing out in any sort of open water, lake, I wouldn't recommend that in Florida with the alligators, ocean, anything like that, you know how easy it can be to very subtly, very unintentionally drift off from where you were meant to be. And so what do you do? When you find where you're supposed to be, you drop an anchor firmly into the ground to keep you grounded in the spot that you're meant to be. And the words of the wise, the words of the teacher, are like an anchor. Like firmly embedded nails, they ground you where you should be. Meaning that what the teacher has told us all throughout the book here is not only true, but it has authority to guide you into a flourishing life. Because as the narrator says, these are words given by the one shepherd In other words, it's wisdom from the one who made the world, God. Meaning that this just isn't practical advice. It doesn't just have practical value for us. It has timeless authority. And that's an important thing. You see, we are all, every day, searching for some sort of authority to help us guide through and navigate our lives. Right? For some of us, it comes through listening to the wisdom of the crowd, for some of us, we, we ride the tide of the newest, most popular ideas on how to understand life. And part of the reason behind that is because there's this general assumption in Western culture today that whatever's newer is automatically, inherently better than what came before it. That as we've progressed as a culture, we are shedding off these older unenlightened, archaic understandings of ourselves and our world and instead discovering these newer, better ways to understand life. And now in one sense, there are plenty of things, even just in the short history of our own country, that we don't want any part of anymore, like slavery. And plenty more things still around today in our culture that we hope and pray are some point left in the dustbin of history like racism and sexism. I hope and pray that my son or my grandson can finally live in a country and in a culture where women and people of minorities never have to feel like half a human. Some things in the past need to be left there. however, When we ride the tide of whatever's newer is better, not only are we experimenting with some very serious ideas that have some very real consequences on how we understand ourselves as humans, how we understand the world, that if we're being honest are in the moment experiments we're talking about things that have never been talked before. We're just hashing out in real time what the identity of humanity is, what rights should be based around, all of these things. But even more than that, what you have to understand is, if this is your way of getting wisdom in the world, at some point you will be on the wrong side of history, too. If the surrounding culture is the way that we get wisdom in how to navigate our world, then by definition, at some point, we will be left on the wrong side of history about something. It's inevitable. At some point, your grandkids will look back and go, I can't believe grandma or grandpa thought this or that. And we just hope that it was something that wasn't that important. But maybe that's why some of us are thinking you're right. And so that's why I I don't just kind of let the, you know, surrounding culture tell me what to do. I don't just kind of follow the wisdom of the crowd and you know, that whatever's newer is automatically better instead. Follow the wisdom of self. I do what feels right to me. That's how I understand the world. That's how I understand who I am. It comes inside of me. In one sense, you could say that that is the main message of our culture today. There's religious versions of it in Christianity, too. But the problem with this is not that you run the risk of being kind of left on the wrong side of history. It's that your wisdom every day when you get up to navigate through life will be ever shifting and changing based on our ever shifting and changing emotions. Where one day we wake up and we think this is what makes the most sense and then the next day we wake up and we think no, it's the direct opposite. I actually think this is the best way that I should go forward. You see, what we need What we need is something more timeless than the wisdom of the crowd, something more grounded than the wisdom of self, and that's what Ecclesiastes is offering us. Wisdom, historically affirmed, that like goads, keeps us on the path, and like firmly embedded nails, grounds us right where we should be, in the love of the shepherd, God. When Jesus Christ becomes the good shepherd and lays down his life for his sheep so that you could flourish under his wise rule. You see, in affirming the words of the teacher and showing us the authority of the words of the teacher, the narrator here confirms that everything he's been saying is good, right, and true, and we need it. In fact, I think if we're being honest, We want it more than we ever even realize. And so after he helps us answer, okay, was this guy right? Now the narrator answers for us, then how can I get it? If everything this guy said was good, right, and true, if this is indeed wisdom to help us navigate through our complex and confusing world, then how do I get it? How can I be wise? And to hear that, we need to hear the challenge of wisdom in these last couple verses. Verse 13 is the key that unlocks the entire book of Ecclesiastes and shows us how we can discover the wisdom we need to navigate through this life. In verse 13, the narrator says, Now all has been heard. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. Wisdom's challenge is this fear God. You want to be wise, you want to know how to navigate the complex, confusing, at times absurd things that we see in life. Fear God. Now, before we can jump into answering this challenge a little bit more, we've we got to first understand what it means at a basic level to fear God. You see, I think a lot of times, if you're like me, when you hear that expression, what b- comes to mind is this dreadful, anxiety-producing, cowering fear that we have before God. But the Bible actually talks about it differently. The Bible says the fear of God is a good thing. Proverbs 28, 14 says, happy is the one, literally, who always fears God. So what is it? Probably the best way that I've heard the fear of God explained is that it is a combination of intimacy and awe. Intimacy, meaning this is a relational fear. It's a personal fear. Thing we're, we're, we're not dealing with some kind of angry mad ogre in the sky no instead we are coming before and fearing the god who moves towards us and makes a covenantal personal loving relationship with us intimacy but then awe meaning that when we stand before god we are floored with amazement and wonder and greatness at who he is beyond anything we could ever imagine. That the way we approach God is shot through at every level with this deep reverence for who he is. So here's what this means. It means the fear of God is not this dreadful fear that an abused spouse would have they're hoping they don't get hurt again. No, the fear of God is this relational reverence where we are so filled with love and amazement at God that we never wanna leave his side and we never wanna let him down. And there's two traits the narrator gives us here of a life that answers wisdom challenge and that fears God in this way. The first he says, is that he obeys God's word. He says, now all's been heard, here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the duty of all mankind. Now obeying God is, is really at the heart of what it means to fear God and be wise. See I think sometimes it can be easy when we're reading through the Bible Uh, to look at God's commands, we think, okay, some of them make sense. Yes, I understand murdering people's bad, adultery's bad, I can logically kind of connect the dots, all these are wrong. Some of them, though, they might seem a little arbitrary, we don't fully understand them, but like any law, even laws we have today, God's law expresses the values of the lawgiver. In other words, God's commands are actually not just some kind of arbitrary list of things that he put out there. It is a direct reflection of the things he loves and the things that he hates. Meaning his commands are really this direct reflection of how he has best set up our world so that we can flourish in it. And so when we fear God and we obey his word out of intimacy and awe for who he is, what we're doing in that moment is we're humbling ourselves under how he's best designed our world and our lives to work. On the other hand, though, when we don't obey, when we don't keep God's commands, we're actually disagreeing with his wisdom. In that moment, when I don't obey God's word, what I'm really telling God in that moment is, I think I know a wiser way right now. You see, when I tell a lie, what I'm really telling God in that moment is, I think my words would be better used if I concealed the truth for my own gain. When I gossip about somebody, I'm really telling God, I think my relationships would be more beneficial if I could objectify this person with no commitment to their growth. When I let my temper go, what I'm really telling God is, I think this situation would best be resolved if I could express my outrage and put justice into my own hands. When I don't help the needy, what I'm really telling God is, I think our community would best be served if Eric put his own interests first. So, do you obey? Or like me, you find yourself far too often telling God, I think I know a wiser way right now. You see, when we fear God and obey his words, we are humbling ourselves in that moment under his wisdom of how he's said the world best works. And it's that humility that we need if we're going to embrace the words of the teacher. So the first way to answer, know that we can answer wisdom's challenge is that we obey God's word. The second way though, is if we expect his judgment. Verse 14, the last verse of the book says, for God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. So the first trait looks at life right now. The second trait, though, looks at life to come. And what the narrator's talking about here is the judgment day, where at the end of time, the dead will be raised, Jesus will return, and will judge with perfect justice everything that's been done, good or bad, known or secret. Now, for some of us, this is... It's a hard idea to embrace. I don't have time right now to get into all the kind of cultural reasons as to why that is. All I can say is if if that's you, if this is a difficult idea for you to embrace, let me buy you lunch and let's talk about it. But for the sake of right now, what we need to see is that however hard this idea might be to embrace, the wisdom of the entire book of Ecclesiastes actually depends on it. You see, all throughout the book, what the teachers told us is that our lives are this complex web of vain, futile, absurd things. But before he lets us just spiral into this hopeless despair and just go off on our own, he then tells us to enjoy certain things in life, food and drink and friends and relationships and work and family as gifts from God. Now, how? How can we do that? How can we live in the gray? This verse tells us how. If there is no judgment day, if there is no day at the end of time where everyone and everything will be held to account, nothing matters. Everything's vain, everything's futile, everything's absurd. Pack up the donuts, the gym, let's all go home. But if there is, a day when everything will be held to account. Now everything matters. You see, the teacher's showing us here, or the narrator showing us here, how the teacher can in one sense wholeheartedly lament the brokenness of our world. I mean, think about it. I know because I, I had to preach one of them. There are some of the hardest, most brutal passages you will find in the Bible in this book. He stares the brokenness of our world square in the face. And yet, at the same time, in the very next breath, some passages can still find joy in the simple gifts and callings that God's put on his life. This verse is how. Because in the end, we will stand before Jesus Christ, who to him, both who we are and what we've done matter deeply and will judge with perfect justice the things we've done. You see what Ecclesiastes shows us is that in the end it will matter how we spent our time whether to build more bullet points on our resume or to serve the needy. It'll matter what we did with our money whether we just it to ourselves to build this life of comfort or we also gave some of it to further God's kingdom it will matter how we handled our relationships whether we isolated ourselves all on our own or where we were vulnerable whether we invested deeply into people's lives it will matter how we worked whether our jobs were there to just punch a clock or build an image or whether we saw them as a chance to influence the common good of everyone Everything we do, the cup of cold water we give to the needy, the silence that we spent today in other people's mourning across the country, the conversations we had about the gospel, in the end, everything matters. So, do you live with this expectation? I wish I did. But if I'm being honest, I don't. See, when we fear God, when we come to him in intimacy and awe, we expect his judgment. We expect a day when in perfect justice, he will settle all accounts. And that everything we do matters. And it's that mindset that we need if we're going to embrace the wisdom of Ecclesiastes. That it's not all meaningless. It's not all vain, futile, and absurd. But in the end, it's just the opposite. And so there's a problem in all this, right? On our own, none of us can answer this challenge. On our own, none of us can manufacture a heart that fears God that sees both the beauty and the reverence in who he is. When we try, when we try to kind of conjure this up, manufacture this fear of God on our own, what we end up with instead is what Martin Luther likened to this servant-like fear of a servant before his master who's about to just hit him again. Meaning that when we do obey out of this kind of out of this fear of God, That we kind of conjure up on our own we obey but it's for the wrong reasons we obey out of this anxiety or prideful anticipation that now now god will accept me and when we try to conjure up this fear of god on our own and we expect his judgment we we end up not expecting his judgment out of this longing for as tolkien said for jesus to return and make everything sad untrue instead we end up expecting his judgment out of either this worry or prideful assumption that I'm going to be the one to pass the test. None of which is what the Bible's talking about when it calls us to fear God out of intimacy and awe, out of this loving reverence for who he is. See, when we try to manufacture it on our own, we never get to this place of truly fearing God. So how can we? How can we be wise? Well, it starts by looking at where this passage ends. Judgment is actually the key to unlocking this relational reverence for God, but in a way that we might not, at first glance, expect. When we read through the Bible, we see God showing mercy, saving people, Through exercising his judgment. Right? So, in the book of Exodus, God saves his people by judging the Egyptians. In the book of Judges, God saves his people again by judging their neighbors. In the Psalms, God saves King David by exercising his judgment on David's enemies. In Esther, God saves his people from the Persians by judging the Persians. In the exile, God saves his people from themselves. By using his justice and executing his judgment on them. In the Bible, when God saves people, it happens through him exercising his judgment, which makes what Jesus Christ did on the cross for us that much more astonishing. On the cross, Jesus completes God's greatest moment of mercy. God's greatest moment of saving humanity through judgment. You see, it wasn't on, it wasn't, when Jesus was on the cross, it wasn't some other country, it wasn't some other person, it wasn't even his own people that God was judging. It was his own son. On the cross, Jesus gladly endured the judgment that you and me deserved, so that through that, instead, we would have mercy. And it's in this moment of unthinkable, divine judgment on the cross that we find a true, holy, and healing fear of God. Because when we look at the cross, we are overwhelmed with a sense of awe in a God who's so beyond us holy as sinful people who is so beyond us holy than we ever could have imagined that the only way for you and I to get close to this God would be his son to sit there and take the judgment that we deserve. That's the only way and we are blown away with awe when we see that and yet at the same time, we are overwhelmed with an intimacy that we never knew possible by in that moment, seeing the God who knows our deepest shame, who knows our most painful wounds, who knows the things we're too afraid to tell anyone. Because we're afraid if they knew this about me, they'd turn the other way and never come back. God knows it all about you. And it didn't stop him from on the cross sending his son to die so that now you would be closer to him than we ever thought possible. That we would literally come into Jesus. See, from the vantage point of Ecclesiastes, the final judgment... Is the ultimate motivation that we have to fear god and be wise yet today we have something so much greater today through faith in the gospel your judgment day has gone from future to past and paid forever by jesus christ meaning that when we sit and experience and look at the judgment that happened on the cross for us how much more should we be people who come before God in this intimacy and awe and accept his good wisdom on how to navigate through our world? How much more should we be people who in the best way possible long then for Christ our Savior to return and make everything sad untrue and remind us that in the end, it all mattered? See, when we experience the grace of the cross we find the true fear of god the true relational reverence that we need to embrace the wisdom of ecclesiastes that gives us something that nothing else can that allows us to be honest with the brokenness of our world the brokenness in ourselves and yet still find joy in the things god's giving us because in the end Everything matters. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the cross of your Son Jesus Christ, where you committed the greatest act ever of salvation through your judgment, when in grace free grace, free for us, costly for you. You accepted us and floored us with an awe in seeing your greatness that demanded the cross and an in intimacy in seeing your love and knowing every deepest part about us and yet you weren't scared away, you weren't ashamed, you weren't embarrassed of us. But instead, you united to, uh, you to us for eternity. Father, help us see the cross today to embrace the wisdom of Ecclesiastes that everything matters. Spend some time in silent reflection.